This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. From his Warwick, Rhode Island offices, I sit down with Rhode Island political figure, Ken Block. Ken Block is a Rhode Island businessman, the founder of the Rhode Island Moderate Party, a one-time Republican gubernatorial hopeful, and an independent government watchdog and political commentator. I asked Ken about his background in business and politics, his potential interest in joining the 2018 Rhode Island gubernatorial race, and about his data research projects, which he says reveal a pattern of voter fraud and misconduct at both the state and federal levels. Mr. Ken Block, thank you so much for having me out into your office today. Appreciate Happy it. Happy to be here. Thanks for coming. Of course. Um, give our listeners just a little background on you know your experience as a business person and uh, essentially as a candidate and political commentator at this point. Um, and also, of course, a watchdog in Rhode Island. Right. You know, I, I got I became politically aware, is how I like to say it, about in uh, 2008 when I realized that uh, if I moved my residence a mile across the border, I live in Barrington, and the you know, the mass border is right there. Uh, if I move my house a mile away, and if I move my business about 10 miles up the road, that I could save a, a huge amount of money in tax. Uh, and it just seemed wrong to me because I knew people who were doing that. They were moving to Taxachusetts for, for tax relief. Uh, and I realized that that was one of the things that was really holding Rhode Island back because uh, if it makes more sense not to be here and to be somewhere else, uh, people will do that. And so that kind of woke me up politically. Uh, I was never really happy with party politics. Uh, I didn't feel that – well, for, I felt that the uh, Democratic Party in Rhode Island uh, had way too much power. It was very unbalanced. And when you have an imbalance of power, regardless of what color tie you wear, you end up with a uh, – usually end up with problems. Uh, so there are states that are heavily Democrat that have problems. There are states that are heavily Republican that have problems. You should always have a balance. And uh, I wasn't happy with the Republican Party uh, in Rhode Island. It was pretty dysfunctional. It's actually still very dysfunctional. Uh, and the Republicans hold almost no seats. You know, they have about 10 percent of the seats uh, in the legislature. So, you know, I started a new political party that was in the political middle, uh, Extremely hard not only to start a political party, but to get anybody to really care about a different political party. I, I realized that wasn't really an effective way to make change in politics. Uh, I, I have run for governor, and I've done all the crazy, silly things that uh, running for governor entails, you know, all the rubber chicken dinners, driving all over the state, marching in parades, shaking thousands of hands, all that stuff. Uh, and you know, in my business, well, I have a couple of different businesses. So, in the business that's relevant in this case, sorry, okay. in, in the business that's relevant in this situation, uh, my software business, uh, we have capabilities to dive into data, really, really deeply into data. Uh, and inside that data, almost always, you learn interesting things and you find interesting stories. And sometimes you really hit a bonanza of what's that doing in here and, and that's wrong or worse, that's fraudulent or it's wasteful or anything else like that. Uh, so over the years, I've used 
our system capabilities, our, our, ability, our ability to analyze data, uh, to look at things like the cost of fire protection in Rhode Island versus other places in the country. And, and what we learned was that Rhode Island is one of the most expensive forms of fire protection anywhere. Uh, and when you geographically list out where all the fire stations are and everything else, they're right on top of each other. You know, uh, uh, Lincoln, uh, Rhode Island is a small community uh, with seven, at the time, there were seven different fire, not stations, fire departments. The town of Lincoln with 33,000 people, I think it was 33,000 people, uh, had seven different fire chiefs paid in aggregate more than $350,000 just for the chiefs. So that's, that was shocking to a great many people, including people who lived in Lincoln. Uh, and it's representative of, of what I think is government run amok, right? When you do things inefficiently, when you're just squandering taxpayer money, when you have duplications of services, uh, those aren't good things. And we seem to have that in spades in Rhode Island. So that's, that's sort of the, the basic background for me. You know, I'm a, I'm a computer nerd. I'm somebody who's really good with data. Uh, I've learned over time that I'm pretty good at uh, public speaking, that I have a great good grasp on policy, uh, and that I made an effective candidate. And I'm using the platform I built to bring change in uh, uh, usually a number of different places at the same time, and I just have a whole list of things I want to get into, basically. For sure. I, I, given the landscape of the Republican gubernatorial uh, situation at the moment, would you ever throw your name into that? Well, so race? I would like to see it a little messier than it is right now, to be honest with you. Even more so. You yeah. think that Alan Fung has too much of a head start, if you will, in terms of name recognition? Um, well, the Republican primary already has three people in it. Uh, so Alan Fung is running uh, against Patricia Morgan and also Giovanni Ferrosi. The Republican primary will have about 30,000 people vote in it. So uh, what I learned in 2014 is that uh, it's kind of silly to risk your political future on a very lightly voted primary, right? 30,000 people voting is, uh, you know, they're dog catchers who are elected who get more votes than that. So uh, that's that wouldn't be the place I would run if I were to run. Uh, because I feel like there's there's better, practically speaking, there's better ways to do it. Um, the Democrats are going to have a primary. Gina Raimondo is going to be primaried by Matt Brown. Uh, and you have Joe Trillo right now running as, a, uh, as an independent. If Matt Brown remained an independent, the race would be far more interesting to me uh, because he would lower Gina Raimondo's turnout or, or expected vote counts. Uh, and I believe I could play largely off of uh, the space that Bob Healy filled in 2014. He took 22% of the vote, more or less sitting on his couch. Right, $39. $39, and he marched in a few parades. That's about the extent of his uh, campaign. Uh, you know, Healy's voters and my voters largely are, are sit in the same space. They're people who don't necessarily practice party politics. They don't like the status quo. They don't think it's working for them. Uh, and they want something different. In a, If Lincoln Chafee were to decide to run for governor as an independent right now, I'd probably announce the very next day. Uh, because I would love that situation and the, the way that the votes get divided up. You know, Gina Raimondo has a 
unimaginable pile of money to spend on the race. Four point one uh, million less right now, less it's, and, and it's going right, up. Right, going. she'll raise another million or two, be you know before before the the actual election. So you know that's a that's a good reason not to run. Uh, although you know Governor Raimondo seems to be capped at forty percent, regardless of what she does. Uh, Alan Fung seems to be capped at thirty six percent, regardless of what he does, uh, which to me says that voters really aren't. Except for their core bases, voters are sort of tepid about everybody. They're looking for somebody different. Um, you know, so there's opportunity there, but look, $4 million can overcome a lot of problems. Right. So uh, I'm just looking at it with interest, and we'll sort of see how things go. I'm plenty busy right now, uh, professionally and personally. So, uh, you know, I'm not looking for something to divert my attention like a governor's race right now. Gotcha. Yeah. Understood. What would you say is the biggest area of, you know, the biggest source of problems that we have right now? Is it a lack of an inspector general or what is it that uh, that, that that creates these this attitude of um, <laughs> misbehavior that seems to be pervasive in Rhode Island politics? You actually want me to list just one thing. <laughs> the thing that if, if someone came in here right now, you have you have one wish granted. You know, you can you can make one thing happen immediately. So the one thing that I would ask for is a constitutional convention. Hmm. Because the only way to make changes to our constitution right now, outside of a constitutional convention, is you have to convince the General Assembly to pass a bill with the specific amendment that you want. And if you're trying to reform the way the General Assembly works, they are not going to want anything to do with that, and you really can't get that reform through the General Assembly. And I point to the the effort to get a line-item veto for the governor. Uh, That is a reform for us. Uh, Forty-four other states already have a governor's line-item veto. Uh, Speaker Mattiello wants nothing to do with it. Well, it diminishes his power. It diminishes his power a little bit. Uh, But you can't really justify us not having it when 44 other states do. And at the end of the day, we need – we should operate the way other states do. And more importantly, why should we have a budget process that doesn't contain a check and a balance? Because right now, Speaker Mattiello can put virtually anything into the budget at the very last minute without anybody anywhere able to do anything about it. And that's way too much power for anybody to have ever. And certainly in a democracy, that's not the way it's supposed to work. So the light item veto would bring a check and a balance. Uh, Speaker Mattiello doesn't want anything to do with it, and he's uh, a pretty formidable obstacle to getting it done. If we had a constitutional convention, we could get that done. I'm certain of it. Uh, We can make other reforms to the General Assembly that needs to be done. In my opinion, one of our biggest problems is the General Assembly, the power that's focused, the way the General Assembly works in Rhode Island. The General Assembly is already more powerful than the governor constitutionally, but the way the operating rules of the General Assembly are set up, the Speaker and the Senate President have outsized powers that many other speakers and presidents in other states don't have. In Rhode Island, if the Speaker or the Senate President doesn't want it to happen, it period can't happen. What are they called? Further study. Is that what it is? Yeah, uh, held for third is further study. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's several different ways they get it done. Uh, I was talking to one of uh, a former speaker in Massachusetts, and when I 
describe to him the way things are set up here. He was shocked. Uh, now, the Massachusetts speaker is considered a very powerful speaker, and he was envious of the power of the Rhode Island speaker. Sure. So, you know, we, there are things that, that should change, I, and I think that's a big part, ultimately, of a lot of our problems. I think that we have a bad system in the terms of legislative power and the way that legislative power is focused. Uh, if the legislature worked a bit more democratically than it does right now, uh, I think we would be in a better place. I think pa- power should be balanced a little bit more between the legislature and the governor's office. Um, you know, and th- those things in total, I think, can do it. You know, you mentioned a- an inspector general. That really probably requires a constitutional amendment because if you create an inspector general with legislation – the legislature can nuke it any time they want, or they could fundamentally neuter it if they wanted to uh, by just changing the law. So I don't think you could leave it like that. Uh, oftentimes what the General Assembly requires for accountability and, and things like that, they exempt themselves from it. So you know, what's good for the goose should be good for the gander. And I think that all of the accountability rules and laws that we have should apply to the General Assembly as well. They shouldn't be exempt. So I just gave you a whole pile right. of, a, of, but it all of different things. But it all back to that idea of a, of a constitutional convention, essentially. So if we had a constitutional convention and it was conducted the right way, those are some ifs, right? Uh, but if you, could, if you could really have a productive one that was focused on governmental reform, I think that you could make tremendous strides and turn Rhode Island into a far better governed place than it is right now. You had um, done some extensive work on early voting and things of this sort happening in in Rhode Island, and uh, it prompted a lot of different reactions. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing a tweet from Jim Terracani that called you a right-wing psycho or something like that. And then on the other hand, there was a lot of uh, media that uh, embraced that mm-hmm. and and really gave you uh, quite a bit of airtime to yeah. explain it. So um, it, it it was a divisive issue, but it, I think you were coming at it. It seemed from a fact you had you were presenting facts. Yeah, uh, can you kind of just give a summary of what? Yeah, you discovered. So again, applying data to government, uh, we decided to look at uh, as a, a private enterprise voting data from as many different states as we could, looking at voting data in as many different ways as we could. Uh, we looked at, well, first of all, I mean, let's talk about the, div- the, the divisiveness of, of it first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Uh, with good reason, people uh, are nervous when anybody looks carefully or calls into question voting. Uh, with Jim Crow not all that far in the past and and plenty of examples, even current day examples, of elected leaders trying to use the ballot to either disenfranchise voters or skew skew the results or uh, tip the playing field by uh, redrawing the voting maps to advantage one party or the other, right? There's all kinds of games that get played. and they, that really shouldn't be played to gain political advantage. So I get all that. On the other hand, as a data guy, 
if you can bring forward data that indicates that there's something going on, I think it's it's on all of us, especially our elected leaders, to pay attention to that and, and do something about it. Uh, I knew there was going to be a gigantic knee-jerk reaction uh, to any findings we would have on the voting data. We found some ridiculous things in the voting data. Uh, we discovered that people vote in multiple places. Uh, Within the same municipality or in, No, oftentimes that? between states. So, mm. so the way our federal elections are conducted, every state is responsible for its own voter registration information. There is no, fo- there's no federal voter registration. Mm. The problem is if you own a house in Florida and you own a house in Rhode Island, let's say, there's nothing to stop you from registering to vote in both places or, in fact, voting in both places. And we found thousands and thousands and thousands of people who do. In fact, we found 2,200 people who voted in Florida as well as also in some other state. Yeah. We found hundreds of couples that voted together at one address in one state and voted together as a couple at another address in another state, voting by mail in one state and voting in person in the other one. We found, I think, five or six couples in the Bronx who also voted in the in the, uh, in the Pennsylvania you know foothills basically, so yeah I mean it, you know it ha- we so we found issues like that uh, we identified in Rhode Island about 250 people who cast ballots in the last election who are registered to vote at addresses that you were not allowed to register to vote from business addresses or things like this UPS or? stores. Uh, commercial office parks, an empty lot, uh, a, a cell phone store, uh, a post, a U.S. post office. They're all disallowed addresses. You found 250 such examples in Rhode Island? Just in Rhode Island. Uh, and when we asked the Board of Elections to look into it, they had their own set of conniptions and uh, did as much in their power as they could to avoid looking at it. What was their gripe? What, they, they just didn't buy the data? I don't think they wanted to create any other kind of narrative other than that there's no such thing as elections fraud. Mm. Uh, with a lot of pressure, the board finally sent the list of 250 voters to the local boards of canvassers to send out letters to everybody, uh, every one of these 250 people saying, hey, what's your story because you're voting from a place that's not allowed? Uh, in response to that, about 125, about half the people responded. And of the 125 people that responded, nearly 70 of them canceled or changed their voter registration as a result. But now, these people voted from an address that was illegal. And as an example, a business owner, actually a, a, a property owner, with a, a, a big house in South County, was voting from a large office building that he owned in Providence. Hmm. Now, why would a property owner whose residence was in South County want to be voting in Providence? Well, because that's probably where his biggest tax liability was. And that is illegal. You're only allowed to vote where your residence is. Uh, that person's voter registration was one of the ones that was changed as a result. I asked the Board of Elections to follow up on this, and 
determine if illegalities had occurred. They had no interest in it. So they basically just sort of said, well, we sent the letter. If someone changed their address, they changed their address, say, la vie. There were a couple people who uh, were registered at business addresses uh, on border communities, westerly or, or in East Bay, who canceled their registration. And when we looked in the other states, we saw that they were registered to vote in Connecticut, for example, instead. So they're actually committing a, a, a more in-depth crime because while their residence is in a different state, they're voting in this one because that's where their business was. So, you know, so there's, there's lots of things to look at. Now, imagine Rhode Island's 250 addresses scaled up to a larger state or looking at, you know, nationwide. Uh, the Washington Post says that there are 39 documented cases of voter fraud, period, end of story. But we are sitting on 10,000 cases of duplicate voting. They're just right there. So... You know, there's a, there's a, there is a dichotomy from what the current accepted thought is about voter fraud and what the data can actually truly show you about voter fraud. Uh, and that's why we looked at it. You know, that, that uh, we came up with it. it. It's it has gotten nationwide play. Um, it's caused a lot of different people in a lot of different positions to ask a lot of questions. Uh, it's a very hard thing to fix because with states' rights and the Tenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, it's pretty hard to put in a federal voter registration system because that would stomp all over the states' rights to conduct their own elections. But when the states are conducting a federal election, which we do every two years because we have votes for Congress – as well as uh, every four years of vote for president. If you were going to design this system from scratch, you would never have a, a federal voter registration system broken apart and serviced by 50 different states. You, right. It's silly. Especially in today's... Yeah, you, you would have a single voter registration system, and all this duplicate voting would disappear. It's big stuff. Where are you going with that project now? With this sort of, uh, we are still have communications going with a couple of different law enforcement uh, uh, departments, and seeing if anyone uh, has an interest in sort of you know doing something about it. Because, especially for the duplicate voting, if you actually don't confront the people doing this duplicate voting, they will continue to duplicate vote. And I think that's shameful because nobody should have two bites at the electoral apple, especially when the, the proof is so stark. You know, when you have couples voting together, that's brazen. By the way, we had, uh, I want to say about 20 families of three who voted together. Uh, we had uh, uh, two families of four who voted together at two different addresses. And we had one person who voted in five different states. Get out of here. Yeah. Well, that's that's bold. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're a, a prevalent figure in the Rhode Island media. You appear on a lively experiment and uh, on WPRO and several other uh, media sources. Uh, what's it like for you as a communicator? Have you found any specific ways with it that, that work well for you to communicate? I see you on Twitter and Facebook a lot, you know, using social media. But um, how does the Rhode Island media machine work for you, I guess? So I, I think that uh, 
I don't think. I know that the Rhode Island media has has substantially shrunk over the decade I've been involved in politics, uh, and that's not a good thing. I think the media has lost capacity to do investigative journalism. It's not completely gone, but it's it's dramatically reduced. Um, the Providence Journal is, is a shadow of its former self in terms of the number of reporters who are able to, to write stories. Uh, and I think that's bad for democracy. I think it's bad when the media cannot be uh, the watchdog that they were certainly 10 years ago and were even more so 20, 30, and 40 years ago. Uh, so that's a, that's a negative uh, that's a negative thing that's happening to us now. Uh, I don't know how that gets addressed over time. Uh, social media is a it's an interesting place to try and do the stuff that I do. Uh, sometimes social media can be used to put an important story out uh, and get it some broad exposure and coverage. Uh, and sometimes it just isn't, no matter what you do. Um, so for me, the challenge is if you have a really juicy story, you don't want to play favorites in the media. But on the other hand, it won't get covered unless you give it to someone as an exclusive. That's just the way the market is right now. Uh, so I think it, made, it makes it really tough for somebody like me because what I'd rather do is hold a press conference and talk about whatever the big finding is. The media has no bandwidth to do something like that. Right. They don't have enough trucks to show up at that, at that right. press conference I mean, and cover everything. You know, I mean, uh, you're, I mean, there's like, you know, a handful of reporters uh, that, that really do the bulk of the work these days. So uh, you have to give them an exclusive to make it worthwhile for them to, to put resources on it, and which automatically limits the exposure that the story can ultimately get. Hmm. So... Uh, it's actually a very challenging environment, and that's one of the reasons I think Raimundo's millions are very important in this upcoming governor's race, because she doesn't need the media to cover her. She can just pay the media to cover her, uh, which is a gigantic advantage. Absolutely. Right? Plus, she's got a, a PR team already in place that has essentially been covering her you know, from her own edited standpoint, right. but it's there. The machine's there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. There are so many fewer places. I grew up around here and um, went to Cherahoe and URI, and, and I was a Channel 10 junkie growing up and everything. Um, and when I came back 10 years later, it definitely was a complete – which was now two years ago um, – completely different landscape. Yeah. Much different. And uh, I – there are new people involved that weren't there before. Ted Nisi, Dan McGowan, Tim White, for one. Um, you know, and then WPRO is kind of – Heading in a new direction, I guess, but but yeah, I wonder where it's going. You know, I wonder how messages will be disseminated in mass in the in. Will, the will we the have future. a statewide newspaper five years from now? That's a great yeah, exactly. I, I can see where we may not. Right, it could become so hyper localized that it's all blog driven and. Well, I mean, you know, you know the the Providence Journal's uh, circulation has been declining. Uh, if you've looked at a weekly paper, they're pretty thin now. Even the Sunday paper, you know, has gotten substantially thinner. So, you know, if we lose a statewide newspaper, that that's a that's an that's a critically important thing to have. And if we lose that, uh, I don't know how we manage to keep you know going. Uh, not that the state shuts down, but 
the ability to shine light where light needs to be shined, it, it will be dramatically reduced. Very scary. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, last question as a Rhode Islander. Are you native of Rhode Island? I know you've been to No, I've, I've only lived here since 1991, so I'm still a newcomer. Yeah, you're still warming up to yeah. it here. <laughs> I always wonder, because when I, when I travel around, a lot of people will, will recognize Rhode Island for very specific things, whether it be for being corrupt or that legacy, that heritage issue, or the idea that we're a community because we're so close together and it's it's easy to navigate the state but what is it that makes rhode island such an interesting place that um you know in spite of the the lack of industry that may be pouring into providence and all the problems what is it that keeps all of us here well i think there's a lot of different factors for different people right there there are rhode islanders who've never left jamestown Sure. As an example, right? Sure. So now I don't think that's the vast majority of people, but you know, so you have one extreme where uh, I was born here, live here, and I will die here, and that that's where that's the way it will be. Yeah. Uh, look, I could do what I do anywhere in the world. Uh, I have chosen to raise my children in Rhode Island. Uh, married my wife in Rhode Island. We built a house that we live in in Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island is a beautiful place. Uh, it's a nice place to raise a family. Uh, there are the people can be very friendly, uh, depending on neighborhood and that sort of thing. Right. <laughs> um, and you know, so so th- there's uh, the access to the water, the tremendous variability in geography. You drive 15 minutes in any direction, and the, the entire geography of the state changes on you in that small span of distance. So. You know that that's remarkable, and we're we're an hour from Boston on a good day. Uh, you know we're a couple hours from New York City, so geographically we're in a great place. Um, really, the thing that holds us back is ourselves. It is our form of government uh, that we've settled on. It's the it's a uh, apathy, I think, to a large extent. It's not easy to be politically involved. You have to, if you're going to get politically active, you better have some thick skin. And a lot of people just don't even want to deal with it. And I get that. And I respect it. But if you're unhappy about the way things go, you can't just hope that somebody else, you know, does the hard work. I mean, you know, there's, Massachusetts is essentially Rhode Island on a bigger scale. Massachusetts has far better schools. Massachusetts has a far better economy. It's not the air that they breathe. It's not the water that they drink. It's the governmental infrastructure that they've put around how they do things. It's how they measure their school success and and that sort of thing. Uh, If we make some relatively small changes here, I believe we can be as successful as Massachusetts is. Uh, Just just to frame it up for you. So... Uh, I think people generally like it here, they love it here, and they want it to work. The question is, can Rhode Island make the changes necessary fast enough to ensure that people who are sort of on the bubble about whether to leave or not decide that they will stay and make it work? Uh, I think the longer that we struggle to bring our economy back, the longer that 
We have political scandals. Not to say that other states don't also have those standard scandals, but due to our small size, they have a much bigger impact when they happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should be squeaky clean. We should be a great place for businesses to want to be. And until we make ourselves a place that business wants to be, we're going to struggle. That's the bottom line. And that's the thing that we have to fix more than anything else. We fix that, and Rhode Island becomes one of the most desirable places to live, in my opinion. Ken Block, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck on your enormous projects you're digging into here. Great. Thanks so much for your time. A real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite listening platform. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Bill Bartholomew. Until next time, thanks for visiting Bartholomew Town. We'll talk soon.